the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up, it's the day of the New Hampshire primary. I'll talk to pollster Stacy McCain of the Rasmussen Survey about what we can expect in terms of the results and also public opinion on the border. I want to ask why January 6th defendants who delete their data uh, are sitting in jail right now, while the January 6th committee, which has been deleting data, is uh, seem to be get, seems to be getting away with it scot-free. And I'll also explore whether stereotypes are as inaccurate as the media tell us or whether they bear a fairly close relationship to reality. Hey, if you're watching on Rumble or listening on Apple, Google, or Spotify, please subscribe to my channel. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Show. America needs this voice. The times are crazy. In a time of confusion, division, and lies, we need a brave voice of reason, understanding, and truth. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. There's a lot of different items I'd like to address in today's podcast. The New Hampshire primary going on today. There is the uh, interesting decision by the... um, Supreme Court, interesting and to me kind of appalling, in which the Supreme Court basically tells the Biden administration, you can go in and stop Texas from erecting border fences. You can take down those fences, you can cut that wire, and uh, and um, so I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about January 6th. Now, the first two topics I'm going to save because I have on the podcast uh, Robert Stacy McCain, he's a pollster with the Rasmussen Report. So I'm going to talk to him about the New Hampshire primary and also about the uh, the border fence decision by the Supreme Court. I want to focus in this opening segment on some new information about the January 6th committee. Now, we've said often and I think long believed that the January 6th committee was a a propaganda operation. Uh, and now what do we mean by a propaganda operation? What we mean is that the January 6th committee had access to a lot of information. If this was a genuine investigation, they would be like, all right, let's interview people. Let's look at all this footage. Let's try to figure out what happened on that day and how it happened. And if things went wrong, how they went wrong and who is responsible. So this is a kind of investigation that by the way, occurs all the time in other areas. If somebody, uh, I and I watch a lot of these crime shows, you see a body and you begin by asking, well, how did this happen? When did it happen? Who did it happen to Who's the victim? And then what can we figure out based upon what's here and based upon what we can learn about who actually did it? We're not going to just make presumptions. We're not going to go out to sort of sell a narrative 
we're going to try to determine what the truth is. And then based upon that, we will do arrests and, and take people to trial and so on. The January 6th committee could have done that. But from the beginning, they had no interest in doing that. Uh, rather, in this vast ocean of information available to them, their strategy was let's try to cull out a handful of images, a handful of statements, and then out of those, we will craft our narrative. It's almost like the January 6th committee decided instead of being a judge um, or a jury and making a decision based upon all the facts, we will be sort of like the prosecution. And we will treat the Trumpsters and Trump as people to be prosecuted, except there's no defense. There's only a prosecution, and we're the prosecutors, and to some degree, we are also the judge, and we are also the jury. Now, here is some additional proof that that's what was going on with the January 6th committee. The House uh, Select Committee, um, the January 6th committee, has been deleting its own files to conceal evidence. And when did they do these deletions? On the right before they were compelled to turn over these files when the Republicans took over the House of Representatives. Remember, the January 6th committee began with the Democrats in charge. And so they were like, fine, we've got all this information, we've got all these files, we've got all these um, terabytes of data, but then, oops, in the midterm, the Republicans take the House. Very narrowly, but nevertheless, according to House rules, the January 6th committee now needs to turn over all this data, all the documents from its investigation to the Republicans. And so there are four terabytes of data, and the Republicans get, uh, they get the package, and they open it up, and they realize... We've only been given two terabytes. And so they then begin to look to see, well, where are the others? And they're like, we don't have them. We don't have them. Turns out that, that the Republicans have now figured out, this is a Representative Loudermilk, his committee has figured out that two of the terabytes of data have been deleted and deleted and encrypted just days before the files were turned over. So this is a obvious effort to uh, to conceal evidence. And so, Representative Loudermilk, unable to get them from Benny Thompson, from the head of the committee, basically hired some software experts and said, listen, let's go into this. Let's find out what they deleted because no deletion is really permanent. If you're good enough, you should be able to recover the files. And guess what? They have recovered them, but, and there's a big but here, the files are still password protected. So the files have now been recovered, but the Democrats are holding on to the passwords. And so uh, Representative Loudermilk is like, you better give us these passwords. And, um, and, the, um, and Mike Johnson has authorized Loudermilk to take all measures to get the necessary passwords so they can figure out the information. Because think about it, it's probably very incriminating information. It's probably information that the January 6th committee deliberately decided to ignore, to pretend like it didn't exist. But of course, they did have it. And so that's why they do the deletions. Now, the reason this is all uh, so outrageous is because there are January 6th defendants who are sitting in jail right now because they did, on a vastly smaller scale, exactly the same thing. 
Now, why did they do it? Well, it's pretty simple. Right after January 6th, there are a bunch of guys, some of them had gone into the Capitol, and they did what people do these days, which is that they posted videos or comments on social media basically saying, we were in the Capitol, we were, we were making our voices heard, and... These, that really shows you that these guys did not think that they were committing any kind of a serious offense. They felt we're, we're protesters, like the left has protesters. And we were exercising our First Amendment rights. We were trying to call out our leaders. We're trying to confront them and find out what's going on with the issue of election fraud. So they were proud of what they did. Or at the very least, they were happy to share information about what they did with their friends and then, of course, they realized, oh, I'm on the FBI most wanted list. Oh, oh uh, anybody who is who got into the Capitol on that day is being arrested. So a lot of people went to their phones. Um, they went to their files, maybe their, their computers, and they began deleting information. Let me take that down. I mean, you know, they're going to use this against me. So in a very understandable way. And then they were accused of what? Well, suppressing evidence, deleting files, uh, preventing the government from being able to investigate, um, interfering with the lawful investigation. There are sort of many different legal expressions that you can use to describe this. And judges were like, you can't do that. You shouldn't have done that. And so there are January 6th defendants, multiple defendants, paying a price for doing exactly this. And yet, and yet, once again, we have powerful January 6th committee doing this on a massive scale, obviously with the approval of the chairman, Benny Thompson, what are the repercussions? I mean, even now, it seems like all that Representative Loudermilk is saying is give us the passwords. In other words, undo your offense by, because we've been able to get those files, give us the passwords to those files, but not... Who gave you the right to delete these files? This is a violation of the rules of the House. You're going to be severely punished. There's going to be motions to throw you out as a representative. There are going to be motions to censure you for your, for your conduct. It, if this were the Democrats, that's what they would be doing. They would be imposing severe penalties on Republicans for doing this kind of stuff. Republicans in our characteristic form are taking a very measured approach, uh, but a measured approach, particularly at this stage of the game, often means that the bad guys get to do bad stuff and get away with it. Now, there's gonna, obviously going to be some value in retrieving the passwords, retrieving the files. It helps fill out the story of January 6th. It helps confirm our suspicions that this committee was a complete sham. I think history will look back and see that it was a complete sham. But nevertheless, it is galling that they get away on on the macro level, what individuals are not allowed to do on the micro level. I recently read an article that said 84% of New Year's resolutions fail in the first six weeks. It got me thinking about PhD weight loss and nutrition and why it's been such a success for Debbie and me. Why we haven't gained one pound of our weight loss back lost 27 pounds, Debbie lost 24. Well, according to this article, most people blame their failure on lack of time, motivation, and a loss of zeal. I was reading, I can clearly see why we have been successful on this program. It's because they make it simple. It doesn't take a lot of extra time. They're masters of motivation. You have a team of coaches by your side the whole time. 
You don't lose your zeal because every week you make great strides and you're excited about moving forward. Don't make getting healthy another New Year's resolution fail this year. Call PhD Weight Loss and Nutrition. Make 2024 your year. Call 864-644-1900 to get started, or you can go online at myphdweightloss.com. You don't have to do this alone. The number to call, do it, 864-644-1900. With each year that passes, the term health goals takes on more and more importance for Debbie and me. In our younger days, feeling great, feeling healthy was just something we took for granted. But now, it's become an active goal in our life. That means we do specific things to help us get there. One of those things we do right here, we take balance of nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule. Very easy to take. Why did we choose balance of nature? Well, there's a bunch of reasons, but probably one of the most important is that they are always made from whole food ingredients. If you start getting more serious about your health goals like we have, I strongly urge you to check out Balance of Nature. Whether you order online or call them direct, you need to use promo code AMERICA. You'll get a special offer, 35% off. Here's the number to call, 800-246-8751. Once again, it's 800-246-8751. Or you can go online, balanceofnature.com. When you use discount code AMERICA, you'll get 35% off. Guys, I'm really delighted to uh, welcome back to the podcast um, Stacy McCain. This is Robert Stacy McCain. He's a um, well, he's the managing editor of the Rasmussen Reports, but he was a uh, veteran journalist with 30 years of experience. In fact, I think I first came across his work in the Washington Times, where he was the assistant national editor. He also is a correspondent for American Spectator, and he's managing editor, as I mentioned, for the Rasmussen Reports. By the way, the website, rasmussenreports.com. Stacey, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Uh, Today is the the day of the New Hampshire primary, and um, there's been uh, some variation, I think, in the polls coming out from different places. Uh, I think I saw this morning that Nikki Haley is predicting that she's going to win the New Hampshire primary. What what are you looking for as somebody who studies all this uh, as the results start to come in? Well, the question is, um, is Trump going to be below 50 percent? OK, that's that's the real question here. Uh, the possibility of Nikki Haley actually winning this, I think, is rather remote. Uh, uh, none of the polls actually show that. I mean, I mean, and if you look at the real uh, clear politics average right now, uh, Trump is at uh, 56% and Haley is a little bit below uh, 40%. So uh, so the question is, you know, I, I mean, if, if Nikki Haley were to somehow keep Trump below 50 percent uh she could claim that as a moral victory uh but going on from there they go to uh south carolina uh then they go to nevada florida uh and and that's going to be a wipeout so it's i i really think uh ron DeSantis made the smart move to uh uh get out when he did and endorse trump because uh you know that that pretty much leaves it a uh, 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 a two candidate race, and as we have seen, been polling for months. Uh, uh, Trump is winning this thing by wide, wide margins. 
It seems like one of the things that um, that's very common in the media is to measure results against expectations so that even if you do relatively poorly, uh, you did better than they thought you were going to. And therefore, in a sense, you are winning or at least you've got momentum. Uh, do you think that there is a... Uh, a kind of a desperate effort, both on the, both in certain camps in the GOP, but also among the Democrats and in the media, to elevate Nikki Haley and keep this race kind of hot. Uh, yeah, you know, they well. Well, first of all, you've got two biases in the media. First of all, they love a horse race. You know, they love competition and conflict. So that is built into. Uh, uh, what the media likes. Uh, but the other thing, of course, is the anti-Trump bias, the Trump derangement syndrome uh, that has been in the uh, uh, media complex for a long time. And, uh, uh, you know, during the day and here in my uh, home office, I, I keep my office uh, TV tuned to CNN. I watch CNN so you don't have to. And and they are just all in on the idea that somehow uh, Nikki Haley is going to stop Trump. You know, it's and and uh, uh, they had a few guests on there this morning who were trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, bring them back to reality where, you know, Trump has been winning this thing all along. And uh, there was some hope, I think, uh, among some people. I mean, you know, I liked uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, you know, I like uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, some of the um, uh, some of the people of Ron DeSantis's teams are personal friends of mine. So, you know, it wasn't that I was, you know, you know, there's the never Trump camp, and then there's the only Trump camp. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not part of that. Uh, and, you know, and and I'm just, you know, whatever the voters decide you know i'm i'm kind of in favor of letting the voters make up their own minds and it looks like just looking at the poll numbers that uh the republican primary voters have made up their mind long ago who they want i mean i think you're raising an interesting point here vicky uh stacy which is that the 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 psychology of the republican voter uh, and the mainstream of the republican party was probably pretty close to the agenda of Vivek Ramaswamy, was probably pretty close to the agenda of Ron DeSantis, uh, and is, of course, close to the agenda of Trump, but is not that close to the agenda of Nikki Haley. In other words, it's not that Nikki Haley doesn't come out of the Republican tradition. She does, but it's almost like she comes out of a Republican tradition, you know, as of 30 years ago, but not one that resonates that well today. I mean, if you go to a Republican meeting today and let's just say you're gaga about, you know, sending money over to Ukraine, you're going to get a chilly reaction at best. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, uh, one of the uh, um, boy, I'm trying to remember how long ago this was uh, uh, circa 2011. Uh, um my my whole point was no more bushes, right? Okay, that I was, you know, I think that, uh, you know, you know, generally speaking, uh, voters and, and you know, certainly conservative voters 
were tired of permanent war for permanent peace, uh, which seemed to be the Bush agenda, open borders, uh, uh, unrestricted, uh, you know, outsourcing to China, uh, that sort of internationalist, I guess you'd call it, uh, or some would say globalist uh, wing of the uh, Republican Party. And Trump killed that. Okay, that is dead. It's not coming back. Uh, and and so you see this uh, in the reaction to, to the uh, conflict in Ukraine. I think that everybody, or most everybody, is very sympathetic to Ukraine. Uh, they don't like the idea of Russia invading over there. But at some point, after $100 billion, $200 billion, how many more billions of dollars are we supposed to spend on this? And people are like, look at our border. We're the ones getting invaded. Uh, uh, so, so why are we spending money to protect Ukraine's border uh, and not doing uh, anything to protect our own border? No, exactly. I think that's a good point. Do you hear me, Stacy? Yes. Uh, yeah, oh, you're, I good, can good. hear you. I just we wanted to make sure. delay. Yeah, no problem. Let's talk about, um, uh, you mentioned South Carolina coming right after New Hampshire. Now, I, I noticed that Tim Scott, the senator in South Carolina, has endorsed Trump. I'm sure that was kind of a blow to Nikki Haley because, of course, that's her home state. What are Nikki Haley's chances? Let's just say she does okay in New Hampshire. What are her chances in her home state of South Carolina? Uh, probably not good. Um, uh, you know, the thing is, and a lot of people don't get this about South Carolina, is that there is a, um, uh, there is a strong um, uh, establishment tendency in the uh, South Carolina Republican Party. Uh, you saw uh, George W. Bush did well there. Um, uh, uh, what's his name? Hang on a second. I'm, I'm, I'm breaking for it. John McCain actually did well in uh, South Carolina. So there is um, there is this establishmentarian you know element. Uh, you have like a lot of uh, retired military people down there, um, and so so there is you know a certain amount of establishment vote down there. But again, if you're talking Republican primary voters, right? Uh, you know it's it's very hard to see Trump not winning South Carolina. Uh, and with uh, Tim Scott's endorsement, uh, Ron DeSantis's endorsement, uh, you'll you'll have plenty of surrogates, uh, you know, in that state, you know, to help him. And again, you know, you know, then you come to Florida, Nevada, uh, Nevada's Trump territory, uh, you know, and so so as you go down the calendar, it's hard to see uh, where does. Uh, you know, where does Nikki Haley win? I don't think it's South Carolina. What I find interesting is that just uh, very recently in the campaign, Nikki Haley pivoted into a certain 
uh, at least moderate embrace of identity politics and emphasis. You know, I grew up brown in the South. I was teased every day for being brown. I mean, I had to chuckle about this because somebody posted on social media her class. And, you know, they're about... A third of the kids are white, about a third of the kids are black. She's sort of right in the middle of that mix. And so I'm like, wait a minute, how people chose to target you of all people? You're sort of the, I would call it the median skin color in the class, you know, right in the middle of everybody. So I found that odd, but the Republican Party has, I mean, look, Tim Scott, obviously part of what the, the appeal of Tim Scott is you've got a conservative and a Republican, but he happens to be black. A part of the appeal of Nikki Haley, I guess, is that she's of Indian descent. And yet it's hard for me to see this being kind of a winning issue in a Republican primary. Do you agree? Probably not. You know, uh, I think it was, um, I, I'm, I can't call her name, Libs of TikTok, Brea. Is that her name? Yeah, J.R.H.A. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, the limbs of TikTok uh, lady posted um, Nikki Haley's uh, senior picture and said, do you think it was her being brown that she was getting teased about? Because she looked like about uh, 30 pounds heavier than she is right now. And so so maybe that's what she was. Uh, she, she heard them say round. And thought they said brown. Uh oh. But uh, no, I, I I think I I, I don't think that uh, you know uh, she was uh, a, a victim uh, being uh, a, a sort of a light brown in um, uh, in South Carolina. But you know your mileage may vary. And and no, uh, that's one thing is that uh, uh, you know Republican voters don't want tokenism. Uh, they don't want identity politics. They don't want DEI uh, uh, quotas. Uh, they believe in merit, and and so uh, you know. Um, if you, I, I've said about Trump, uh, Trump is the third iteration of a populist trend that started after uh, the 2008 campaign with Sarah Palin. She, you know, she was the populist voice uh, that helped inspire the Tea Party, and that was followed up by Herman Cain, if you remember, uh, in the uh, 2012 cycle, and then Trump comes along. What they have in common is that they are seen as outsiders, not part of the D.C. policy establishment. And Nikki Haley, as you point out, is is trying to pander uh, to uh, a CNN audience, trying to pander uh, to the media, trying to pander to, uh, you know, I guess people who aren't Republicans. And that may uh, help her get some independent voters in New Hampshire. But I don't think it's 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 going to help in South Carolina, Florida, Nevada and and on down the line, I think that uh, by the time you get Super Tuesday, this thing is going to be over. We'll be right back with Stacy McCain, managing editor of the Rasmussen Reports. The website RasmussenReports.com. We all know that aches and pains come with getting older, but it doesn't mean you have to accept it. That's why I want to tell you about Leah from Ohio and her Relief Factor story. One Sunday, Leah was sitting on her couch in so much pain, she was literally in tears. That's when she decided 
Friday Relief Factor, and in just eight days, she found relief, and she continued to get, quote, better and better. She says, I am truly amazed at this product. We know from personal experience that it works. Debbie can now do planks and push-ups, which for many years she wasn't able to do. So if you're tired of living with aches and pains, see how Relief Factor, a daily drug-free supplement, could help you feel and live better every day. To get started, try this. It's the Relief Factor three-week quick start kit. It's only $19.95, and it comes with a feel better or your money back guarantee. So what do you have to lose? Call 800-4-RELIEF. That's the number, 800-4-RELIEF. Or you can go to relieffactor.com. You'll feel the difference. Mike Lindell and the employees at MyPillow want to thank my listeners for all your continued support. Thank you. They're having an overstock clearance sale right now for the best prices ever. When you use promo code Dinesh and you get free shipping on your entire order. Get 50% off the MyPillow 2.0 and the brand new flannel sheets. They just arrived. They won't last long. You can get six-pack towel sets for only $29.98. Take advantage of the free shipping on larger items like mattresses and mattress toppers. They're 100% made in the USA on sale for as low as $99.99. Everything is on sale. The brand new kitchen towels, which have the same technology as the bath towels that actually absorb. You got dog beds, blankets, couch pillows, and so much more. To get the best specials ever, go to MyPillow.com. Use promo code Dinesh or you can call 800-876-0227. Again, that's 800-876-0227. Get free shipping on your entire order while supplies last. Uh, I'm back with Robert Stacy McCain, the managing editor of the Rasmussen Reports. The website is rasmussenreports.com. Uh, Stacy, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the issue of the border. And, uh, this, of course, is red hot in the news right now because the Supreme Court intervened, uh, to permit the Biden administration to um, to block Texas from erecting a kind of wire fence in Eagle Pass and places where the the Texas authorities are trying to keep illegals out. Uh, the Biden regime obviously wants to let them come in. And uh, I guess the Biden people went to the Supreme Court and said, in effect, that we, the federal government, are in charge of the border, not these Texas dudes. And so they should not be allowed to interfere with our kind of porous border operations, I guess you'd put it. And um, and somewhat surprisingly, uh, Chief Justice Roberts um, and Amy Coney Barrett sided with the liberals, if you will, to uh, to give the Biden administration this authority. Uh, what is, uh, I want to talk about public opinion on this, but before I do, what was your reaction to that uh, Supreme Court decision? It's not an adjudication of the overall case. The case is still pending, but nevertheless, it, the court sort of said that right now, this is what we're going to decide. Yeah, and we've got a... Republican majority on the court right now. Okay. Justice Roberts, of course, he's, you know, he always votes with liberal on liberals on anything, uh, you know, remotely concert, uh, you know, controversial. Um, and, uh, but losing Amy Comey Barrett, uh, uh, just, you know, that was, uh, a, a little bit of a disappointment to me, uh, you know, where the federal government, is failing to enforce the law, 
where the federal government is not protecting the wives, uh, wives, property, and liberty of its citizens. Uh, and the situation on the border is dire, uh, if you uh, have paid any attention at all. And so the failure of the Biden administration on this policy, uh, you know, uh, it seemed to, uh, you know, I don't know what the claim was uh, that, uh, you know, the federal government had to go in and cut those, uh, you know, uh, uh, razor wire uh, barriers. That, that, that made no sense to me. Well, I mean, I'm trying to understand what might have been going on in her mind. And my guess is that what Amy Coney Barrett was thinking was something like this. She probably thought, well, listen, uh, it may seem to me and to many people that the Biden administration is ignoring immigration law, but that issue has not come before the Supreme Court, nor have we adjudicated it. So that's a separate issue. Let's just ask the prior question of who is in charge of the national border. And if you answer the federal government, then whether they're doing a good job or a bad job is immaterial. It's kind of like saying, who's in charge of the national defense? So, you know, if China's attacking the United States, Texas can't mount its own militia to fight the Chinese. This is the job of the oh, federal yeah. government. <laughs> Well, and the, at the end of the day, yes. You might want to talk to the Texans about that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess that's right. No, I'm just trying to think aloud constitutionally and try to understand what might be right. going on in, in Barrett's mind. Let's, you know, here's an interesting survey that you guys did, uh, the Rasmussen reports, uh, border security. Uh, 58% see catastrophe in Biden policy, although somewhat to my surprise, 30% of likely voters believe Biden is doing a good or excellent job on immigration issues. Now, I'm assuming that that 30% is the absolute hardcore of the Democratic base uh, uh, and that a, a sizable majority of Americans will see what's happening and go, this is not good. Yes. Uh, well, 52% give him a poor rating. And then there's a, 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 about 15% that answer he's doing a fair job. And then the, you have a certain percentage that just don't know. But yes, 30% actually think uh, he's doing at least a good job on uh, immigration issues. But what we did is uh, we took a quote. Uh, from Mike Johnson, who is, of course, the Speaker of the House, we took a quote from him and and give it to the uh, 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 survey respondents blind without telling them who we're quoting. And the quote was this. Since his first day in office, President Biden has worked to systematically undermine America's border security. The result is a humanitarian and national security catastrophe that's the quote we asked them do you agree or disagree with that quote 58 percent agree with that quote right that it's a catastrophe at the border uh and that includes 44 percent who strongly agree and, and then you're talking about the uh uh the hardcore of uh, uh, pro-Biden uh, voters, but 37% disagree. So it's about a 20-point uh, margin uh, for uh, those who agree with what Mike Johnson said 
about Biden undermining America's border security. I mean, that to me, Stacey, is a very significant uh, point because it's one thing to ask people, do you approve or disapprove of Biden's border policy? That's a very neutral question. The way that you framed it by quoting Mike Johnson is your the suggestion from Mike Johnson is not merely that the policy is being poorly executed, but that they are I read the word systematically to mean deliberately that there is a kind of conscious assault on the integrity of the border. And you're saying that even put in that way, 58 percent of people go, yeah, that's what's going on. Yes. And I, and I think I think if, if, how do we understand what Biden is doing and why he's doing it? And I think uh, the the. The easiest way to understand what Biden is doing at the border is to suggest that he's uh, taking a, a page sort of from Philly Schlafly, who famously said in 1964 that, you know, the duty of a political party is to give people a choice, not an echo. Right. And so. So they have flipped that around because, of course, in 64, the choice was between LBJ and Goldwater. So Biden was elected as being not Trump, correct? Okay, so so if Biden is the not Trump candidate, then he has to take the not Trump policy on, on border security. Um, that, you know, Trump wanted to build a wall, build a wall, build a wall and, uh, you know, to protect the border. And so Biden's impulse or, or at least the impulse of his administration is to, um, you know, do the opposite of whatever Trump would do. And so tearing down, uh, you know, you know, the state of Texas spent their own tax money to, you know, to reinforce the border and Biden wants to tear it down. So, so yes, I think that the policy, it's an instinct of doing the opposite of whatever Trump would have done. Very interesting, uh, because people have, you know, and not me too, have speculated about the fact that they're trying to change the demographic composition of the country and so on. And, and maybe some of that's going on. But I think what you're saying is there's a kind of very basic motive here. If Trump says up, they say down. If Trump says down, they say up. And that's the way that they've governed in the, in the opposite manner of what Trump would have done. Um, yeah, great stuff. Uh, thank you very much, Stacey, for joining me. I've been talking to Robert Stacey McCain, a managing editor of the Rasmussen Reports. It's RasmussenReports.com. I want to talk in this segment about DEI, but I want to go beyond the surface critique of DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, to look at a very controversial question that is almost never looked at, which is the accuracy, the accuracy, not the inaccuracy, but the accuracy of stereotypes. Now, this is an important issue because when we do a critique of DEI, a lot of people will say, well, we need to hire based upon merit. But of course, the reason we got DEI in the first place is that the progressives insist that 
people don't in fact hire based on merit. They don't uh, recruit based on merit. They recruit based on stereotypes. So in other words, the idea here is that there are pervasive stereotypes, and the presumption here is that the stereotypes are wrong, they are absurd exaggerations, they are false. And so when you use those as the basis for promoting or hiring or giving someone a federal contract, that is a departure from merit. And so there needs to be a kind of war on stereotypes. And you know how often when you, even in common conversation, you say something, people go, well, that's just stereotype, Dinesh. Well, uh, and the assumption, again, is that this is inaccurate and that uh, the settled science, uh, the science of statistics, the science of surveys, is uh, systematically demolishes and refutes these stereotypes. Now, there's an interesting academic paper that's come out on this, uh, written by two scholars, Lee Jassim and Nathan Honeycutt, and they argue that this kind of war on stereotypes is complete bunkum, is complete nonsense, that the vast majority of stereotypes that people believe are accurate. And um, so, we have to then, if that's true, and we're going to look and see if it's true, we have to say, well, how is it the case that so many people think that stereotypes are bogus? Well, usually the people who think that stereotypes are bogus will come up with a bunch of stereotypes. Let me give you a few. Um, women are fit for nothing but child-rearing. Uh, Muslims are, own, are, uh, are bloody, bloodthirsty terrorists. And what they will do is that they state these kind of generalities. They usually find some examples from a political cartoon or from a commercial or a character in a movie, and they go, well, that's a stereotype. And uh, then they go, let's compare that to reality. For example, you know, there might be a a very small percentage of Muslims who are actual terrorists. There may be a larger percentage of Muslims who are sympathetic to terrorism, but still a majority or not. So, hey, there you go. The stereotype is obviously bogus. But what these scholars point out in this article is that that's not a real stereotype because the truth of it is no one actually believes that. So when you're, when you're refuting a stereotype, you can't just take a cartoon or the stereotype itself is a straw man. So, for example, can you find people in our society who say, quote, women are fit for nothing but child rearing? Who Are there large bodies of people who think that? No, there actually aren't. So if you want to find out stereotypes, you've got to look not at a cartoon or your own invented exaggeration, but opinions that people actually hold. In fact, people don't actually hold opinions like all blacks are thieves or Jews are really stingy. Every single Jew is really stingy with money. Nobody believes these things. So the the effort to overturn these stereotypes is essentially the overturning of a straw man. If you want to overturn stereotypes, you've got to look at generalizations that people actually hold. And so let's take a few, let's, let's pose some questions that can be put before people to see what people actually think. And then you can examine uh, whether, or not, um, whether or not people's opinions or people's generalizations are true or not. So here we go. Which group is more likely to commit murder, men or women? Your correct answer is probably men. And not only is that the opinion of most people, that's the truth. Here we go. Uh, Older people are generally more or less 
dash than adolescence, conscientious and open to new experiences. Are older people more open to new experiences or are younger people more open to new experiences? Most people think younger people, that's what Debbie's answering. And that's true. It's borne out by all kinds of data. Um, in which ethnic group are you likely to find the highest proportion of people who support the Democrats, Democratic presidential candidates, whites or blacks? Well, the answer is blacks. Uh, most people say blacks and most people are correct. The uh, blacks support the Democratic candidate by a much higher margin. Um, people in the U.S. strongly identifying themselves as Dash are more likely to go to church on Sunday, conservative or liberal. <laughs> Most people think <laughs> conservative. conservative, says Debbie. Cling. Right answer. That's the truth of the matter. In other words, that's not just the stereotype. The stereotype is completely borne out in reality. And you can go down the list like this on and on. Now, the... The attack on stereotypes goes back to the 1950s. I remember a psychologist at Harvard, Gordon Alport, wrote a book called The Nature of Prejudice, in which he basically said, we all know that stereotypes are wrong. And I'm like, this is a, a rather startling statement by a prominent scholar. And so I sort of look for the footnote. We all know that stereotypes are wrong. Where's the, where's the data to back that up? And interestingly, there is no data. It is simply stated as a fact that stereotypes are inaccurate, or at least wild overstatements. And the point that this article is making, uh, and, 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 and it's supported by a, a whole body of research and data, is that no, stereotypes are not wild exaggerations. They are not exaggerations at all. Mostly what people actually believe about groups is true. Now, you, to, 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 to validate this, again, you have to emphasize what do people actually believe. Nobody believes that all men are taller than all women, right? If you believe that all men are taller than all women, then you're wrong. Because you can obviously find Susie and she's six foot two and Jake and he's five foot three. Um, but most people believe that men in general or on average are, what, three or four inches taller than women. And they're right. If you actually did a measurement of men and women at the same age, uh, you'd find that that is roughly true. Now, we all know that at certain ages, women actually can be taller than men, but we're talking about adult men and adult women. Now, there have been, according to this article, over 50 studies that uh, assess the accuracy of people's beliefs about demographic, nation, uh, national, political, and other groups. And this subject has been intensely studied, particularly with regard to two topics, differences between ethnic and racial groups, and also differences between men and women. So in the, in the controversial areas that we're talking about, obviously when we're discussing DEI as a remedy, they're talking about racial stereotypes and gender stereotypes. And the point that the article is making is that on that topic, just as in any other topic, by and large, most people's stereotypes are accurate. They're, they're, they're supported by the data. Now, we're not discussing here whether these are nice things to believe or whether these, we're, we're not discussing the, the ought. We're discussing the is. We're asking someone a factual question about the world. So it would be something like, like, um, in, uh, in the firefighters test, 
uh, which group is likely to do the best? Whites, blacks, Hispanics, Asian Americans. And you have people, they give their opinion, and then you just look at the actual result of the test. And so that's what we're looking for, a correspondence between people's belief and reality. If you want to step back and evaluate the belief, oh, I really object to the fact that most people have that opinion. We're not asking whether these opinions are good or bad. We're asking whether these opinions comport with reality or not. And what this article concludes, stereotype accuracy has been obtained uh, using methods um, and replicated by multiple independent researchers studying different stereotypes and using different methods all over the world. Now, that obviously raises the question, why are stereotypes accurate? And the answer is very simple. Stereotypes, by and large, are based upon people's experience. So if people make generalizations, and this is something that we do from our youngest age, in fact, intellectual activity would be impossible if you couldn't make generalizations. Water tends to be wet. And if you pour water on the ground, it's going to spread out. A ball is going to bounce. So you see another ball, that's likely to bounce as well. So what happens is that based on your experience, you develop expectations. And the expectations are not that when expectations are applied to groups, that's when you get a, a stereotype, which is nothing more than a group generalization. Now, there are cases where people's experience can be mistaken. Um, but by and large, the point is that stereotypes are not mistaken. People in general are correct in their perceptions. And, and this is really important because it really means that the DEI kind of propaganda against stereotypes is bogus. If you want the truth about things, stereotypes by and large are the truth. And so this big campaign to get people to abandon stereotypes, oh, Dinesh, that's just a stereotype. My point is what you're saying is that I'm, I'm making a true generalization. Generalizations are not true in every case, but they are true across the board. They're, they're true in most cases. They're true, quote, in general. So I think that as we, as we see this critique of DEI, can't just be a critique that says merit, merit, merit. We've got to defend the infrastructure of merit and show that when people sometimes in evaluating merit make generalizations, those generalizations are not necessarily wrong. Subscribe to the Dinesh D'Souza podcast on Apple, Google, and Spotify, or watch on Rumble, YouTube, and SalemNow.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.